In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What we have under consideration this evening, and which we have been considering throughout this Lenten season during our midweek services, is the perfect prayer. It is perfect because Jesus himself taught it to us. It is perfect because he commands us to pray it. And it is perfect because the one who taught us to pray it is the one who grants us access to God. We have access to God in our prayers because we have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He brings us back to the Father. He dwells from eternity in the secret place of the Father's heart, and he came to reveal all secrets of God's heart toward us. And he teaches us to pray. The forgiveness of sins is at the center of every prayer we pray. You cannot pray unless you, at the very least, even in the quickest breath or in the back of your mind, first pray the introduction to the Lord's Prayer and the first three petitions. Every prayer begins by asking in humility for access to God's ear. We know that this is the center of every prayer. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, and God desires to bless us. But today, we, I'd like briefly to survey and summarize the entirety so far of the Lord's Prayer as we've considered it. And whenever I teach Luther's small catechism, either to young kids or adults, I especially urge them to commit the uh, Lord's Prayer and Luther's explanation to it, to memory, to know it by heart. And this is because I think that if we forget how to recite Luther's explanation to the Ten Commandments or the Creed, these are still kind of self-explanatory. But there's something about the Lord's Prayer that begs to be explained further to us and that we must each know how to explain ourselves. If we don't even know the meaning of the Lord's Prayer, it is nothing more than an exalted prayer that our minds can't reach. It must become a prayer that we understand readily even as we pray it. Otherwise, we're speaking thoughtless words and not from our hearts. And so we consider, especially with, with hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come, that we need to know what we're saying. There are times when we pray without really realizing what we're saying. So, and I think we're all guilty of that. Or maybe we get caught on one petition and there's a good time to focus on one petition at a time as we've been doing during Lent. But right now, before we get into the fifth petition, in the interest of helping you pray and know what you're praying and know what exactly God is promising to hear, I'd like to review how far we have come and point out a certain rhythm and flow to the Lord's Prayer that has helped me in my own praying and I think will help you. Look at the structure of the perfect prayer. We begin by addressing God as our Father, our Father who art in heaven. God tenderly invites us to believe something, to believe that we are his true children and that he is our true Father. We say, who art in heaven, 
He who is in heaven is reconciled to us by the blood of his Son, who shed his blood here on earth. He is in heaven, and so we ask him, first by setting our minds on things above. And who is above? What is above? But our Father in heaven, and we ask that he starts sending things down to us from heaven. This is how you set your mind on things above. How else will you begin other than by believing that God in heaven is reconciled to you by the blood of Christ? And so you believe that he is your true father and you believe that he will respond to you as a dear father does to his dear children. And since we are reborn in Christ, buried with him in baptism and raised again by the glory of the father and we look forward to going to heaven We ask that God send good things down to us from heaven. And what is the first thing we ask for? Well, what else? We ask that his word be taught to us in its truth and purity. Hallowed be thy name. We depend on his word. We bear his name. We ourselves, by baptism, have become little Christs. That's what Christian means, little anointed ones. We are little Christs in whom the word of God has worked faith. And so we ask that God who has bound his own glory and honor to the preaching of the gospel, we ask that God would grant that we may always participate in that great honor of his name by believing the gospel. In order to believe the gospel, you must hear it preached, and you must hear it preached correctly. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We just heard Jesus teach us. Well, we ask in this petition that we may hear it. Thy kingdom come then we ask that we may keep it. With this petition, we confess that it is not enough for the pure word of God to be found on earth, preached somewhere. But the word of God must penetrate deeply into our hearts. It is not enough for it to go in one ear and out the other, or to fall on hard soil. It must loosen our hearts and teach us to have tender mercies in our hearts by knowing the tender mercies of God toward us in Christ. And the Holy Spirit teaches us to know our God aright by teaching us to know Christ. That is how we call him Father with delight in the first place. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit who intercedes with our own spirit to cry out when we don't know what else to pray, Abba, Father. And he himself initiates in our hearts that fight against the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And he initiates that fight by teaching us that it is already won by Christ who bore our sins. What a wonderful thing. When we ask for the Holy Spirit, we're asking for Christ to hold the field forever. For the word that is near us to be even nearer in your hearts and in your mouths. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And having God's favor with these first two petitions and securing it with these first two petitions, we commend and consent, commend ourselves and consent uh, to God's plans for our lives. Because if if what he wants most is, is to forgive us our sins, is to preach his word to us and give us faith and to bring us heaven to heaven when we die, then what we want, what he wants to triumph over whatever it is that we want. We talked a couple weeks ago, I think, about how this is kind of a risk. You are throwing all of your confidence in what God wants. How dare you? 
Well, you dare, because you know that what he wants is better than what your will has ever earned for you. What you want leads you into regret and shame. But what he wants gives you forgiveness. He knows how to keep us in the faith. He knows how to save us. He knows how to do for us what is most important. And I suppose we could stop praying. Because that's what we want most, right? But of course, God so willed to bring heaven down to earth. And in order to bring heaven down to earth, and to put into our hearts that faith which saves us, he has to take care of the earthly vessel in which he has worked such confidence. And as we heard this last Sunday on Lytari, the feeding of the 5,000, he cares. He gives us our daily bread. But only once we have firmly established in our prayers to God that this is what we want more than anything, do we dare ask for all these things which our own hearts are inclined to turn into idols. He before whom we should have no other gods commands us in this petition to ask for things that our hearts by nature turn into other gods. This is almost a dangerous prayer if you think about it. God tells us to ask for the things that all mankind replaces him with. And yet he cares for our body. And he tells us, he who leads us into no danger, he tells us to ask for our daily bread, thus securing for us, since we are to pray for what is sufficient for the day, that we will also look to him in heaven tomorrow. And we will be dependent on him every day and content to have to ask him day by day. How can we be so bold as to ask for those things that our hearts are so naturally fond of turning into idols? Our daily bread, our reason, as we heard last week, without even while we pray coming into contact and coming to terms with the fact that we are filled with doubt and lust and greed. It is with this prayer, I think more than anything, that we get distracted with our sins. It's a very well-placed petition which we have before us today. We need forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look upon our sins, nor on their account deny our prayers, for we are wor worthy of none of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, but that he would grant them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much, and indeed deserve nothing but punishment. So will we also heartily forgive and readily do good to those who sin against us. So let's summarize what we have in the Lord's Prayer. And this is the rhythm that I think is helpful. We set our minds above where Christ is, where God is, where our lives are hidden in him. We address God in heaven. We ask him for his word, and then we ask him for faith to drive it into our hearts. We ask him to make his heavenly will triumphant over every earthly will. Then we ask for earthly things. Then we realize our sin, and then we ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our trespasses. And so with today's petition, we cease to ask God to bring heaven down to us. We have prayed for this in the first three petitions. And he has brought heaven down to us. 
And we have prayed for him to protect and provide while here in Babylon, so to speak, in the fourth petition. And now in the fifth petition, we begin to ask God to take us from earth to heaven. It's a quite beautiful rhythm, this structure of the perfect prayer. And if you find visuals useful, this graph of sorts that we are asking God to come down to preserve us here, then now we're asking God to bring us up. And as we continue with these midweek services next week, and then also on Good Friday, we'll talk about the deliver us from evil. We see this is a beautiful way to have in your mind a picture of what we're praying for. Come down, take care of me, bring me up. But notice that in the third petition, thy will be done, we ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're asking for heaven to impose itself on earth, right? We're asking for Zion, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, to impose itself on Babylon, right? And that's how we win. That's how we're saved. But with this petition, we don't ask for something to happen on earth the way it happens in heaven. No, we ask for the opposite. We ask for something to happen in heaven the way it already happens on earth. We don't pray and teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Now, to be sure, we heard St. Paul command that of us in Colossians chapter 3, but no, we pray and forgive us our trespasses in this way, dear Lord. We tell him how we want him to forgive us. Forgive us the way we forgive each other. That's how we want you to forgive us. Forgive us the way you taught us how. Make heaven fit Make heaven conform to the heaven that you have already established on earth. You make forgiveness to prevail and reign on earth. Now make heaven fit for earth. We are switching as we ask God to bring us up to heaven. We're asking him to bring heaven up with us. Because heaven is here. Heaven is here. We are already in Zion in the midst of Babylon. Everything we ever need in heaven has already firmly come down. It must. If it does not rule the world, if it does not rule and, and deter every wayward will, it must rule yours. It must rule your heart. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding was brought to perfection on earth where the Son of God shed his blood. Forgiveness was not perfected in heaven. Forgiveness was perfected on earth. Forgiveness was revealed to the angels, not in heaven, but on earth, where God earned it and won it and commanded it to be preached to you. So with this petition, petition, we are making a promise that we believe that we are already children of God, that we are already living in heaven wherever the gospel is preached, wherever he forgives us. We're telling God no longer to impose heaven on earth, but to impose what has happened in our hearts on heaven. We get the same type of language, this forgiveness language, on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, that's forgive, will be loosed in heaven. He's promising that what he speaks to you in the absolution, this determines what occurs in heaven. This determines 
eternity in heaven. But of course, these words that Jesus speaks in Matthew 18 refer to the in the stead and by the command forgiveness that I give you as your called and ordained servant of the word, right? And of course, we appeal to the objective reality that the word was made flesh, that God with us, Emmanuel, absolves us, that he gives us forgiveness, that the reason you can trust the absolution isn't because of how sincere you are or how passionately I speak it, but because there is an objective reality that God did not impute the trespasses of the world against them, but against his son on the cross. And by his resurrection, the world is justified before God. And this is to be received by faith, and you need this absolution. But what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, what we appeal to in the Lord's Prayer, is not in forgive us our trespasses as pastor forgave me. We say as we forgive those who trespass against us. The objective reality of what Christ has done for us and the whole world is the basis by which the pastor is able to absolve you. And so also the basis for you to be able to be reconciled to one who has sinned against you is found in forgiveness that comes even before anyone is sorry. In your heart, you appeal to what Christ has done. You forgive others, not once they're sufficiently sorry. And they usually never are. You forgive them because you have access to the Father in heaven because you are a little Christ. You bear it. You confess what Christ has done for you. But it can happen, and often does, that one who has sinned against you may come and not seek God's forgiveness, but seek yours. It may come that you don't want to forgive because you feel no forgiveness. You're still mad. And I have heard it and seen it many times that there is a holy and sanctimonious cop-out when people, instead of saying, I forgive you, Christians will do this. They'll say, God forgives you. If I have sinned against you and I ask for your forgiveness, I'm asking for yours, not God's. It may well be that the one who has sinned against you needs God's forgiveness too. But you can pray for that. He may get there. But if he comes to you, he wants your forgiveness. As I say to the homebound members, I ask them when we say the confession of sins, do you believe that the forgiveness of sins is not mine but God's? Yes. It's not mine. You haven't done anything against me, but you've done something against God. She desires God's forgiveness, and so I give it to her. But there are those who have sinned against you and they want your forgiveness. And Jesus says that you must give your forgiveness, not just give them God's forgiveness, because that's what God does. He forgives, but I'm still mad. No, no. You are a little Christ. You must give forgiveness from your own heart. You must give forgiveness from a heart that has known forgiveness. You must give forgiveness from a heart that gives proof that heaven reigns on earth. And that what happens on earth determines eternity in heaven. You must forgive, forgive from a heart that understands and knows and relies upon the great, wonderful truth that the forgiveness for the whole world was purchased and won by Christ on the cross. That God became man in order to reveal the heart of God, who is pure spirit, but God became flesh and blood. Forgiveness was not perfected as some heavenly platitude. And that's how we treat it. 
We teach one another and we teach others not to treat it like a heavenly platitude. When we show that the forgiveness of sins is not perfected in the abstract, it's perfected in the flesh and blood heart of a man. God, who assumed our human flesh and blood, and that his Holy Spirit is able to create faith that is so bound to him who reigns in heaven that it desires the same will, possesses the same spirit, honors the same word, and claims the same Father. We do that by forgiving one another from our hearts. We forgive from our hearts. Of course, we want other people to seek forgiveness from God, as we must do every day. But we prove and display God's desire to forgive by forgiving from our own hearts, by teaching others not to seek God's forgiveness as some platitude of mercy in heaven, but to seek God's forgiveness only in the flesh and blood Son of God, whose own heart was moved to give his own life for you. We forgive from our hearts to prove not only to ourselves but to one another that Zion rules in the midst of Babylon, that mercy rules in the midst of our sinful hearts, and that God rules on earth. And when he brings us to heaven, we will be bringing heaven with us. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.